Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Plato's Dialogue, Phaedo, Part 10 But I have nothing more to say, replied Simeus, nor can I see any reason for doubt after what has been said. But I still feel, and cannot help feeling uncertain in my own mind, when I think of the greatness of the subject and the feebleness of man. Yes, Simeus, replied Socrates, that is well said. And I may add that first principles, even if they appear certain, should be carefully considered. And when they are satisfactorily ascertained, then, with a sort of hesitating confidence in human reason, you may, I think, follow the course of the argument. And if that be plain and clear, there will be no need for any further inquiry. Very true. But then, O oh my friends, he said, if the soul is really immortal, what care should be taken of her, not only in respect of the portion of time which is called life, but of eternity? And the danger of neglecting her from this point of view does indeed appear to be awful. If death had only been the end of all, the wicked would have had a good bargain in dying. For they would have been happily quit, not only of their body, but of their own evil together with their souls. But now, inasmuch as the soul is manifestly immortal, there is no release or salvation from evil except the attainment of the highest virtue and wisdom. For the soul, when on her progress to the world below, takes nothing with her but nurture and education. And these are said greatly to benefit, or greatly to injure, the departed, at the very beginning of his journey thither. For after death, as they say, the genius of each individual to whom he belonged in life leads him to a certain place in which the dead are gathered together, whence, after judgment has been given, they pass into the world below, following the guide, who is appointed to conduct them from this world to the other. And when they have there received their due and remained their time, another guide brings them back again after many revolutions of ages. Now this way to the other world is not, as Aeschylus says, in the Telephus, a single and straight path. If that were so, no guide would be needed, for no one could miss it. But there are many partings of the road, and windings, as I infer from the rites and sacrifices which are offered to the gods below in places where three ways meet on earth. The wise and orderly soul follows in the straight path and is conscious of her surroundings. But the soul which desires the body, and which, as I was relating before, has long been fluttering about the lifeless frame and the world of sight, is after many struggles and many sufferings hardly and with violence carried away by her attendant genius. And when she arrives at the place where the other souls are gathered, if she be impure, and have done impure deeds, whether foul murders or other crimes which are the brothers of these, and the works of brothers in crime, from that soul everyone flees and turns away. No one will be her companion, no one her guide, but alone she wanders in extremity of evil until certain times are fulfilled. And when they are fulfilled, she is born irresistibly to her own fitting habitation. As every pure and just soul, which has passed through life in the company and under the guidance of the gods, has also her own proper home.
Now the earth has diverse wonderful regions, and is indeed in nature and extent very unlike the notions of geographers, as I believe on the authority of one who shall be nameless. What do you mean, Socrates? said Simeus. I have myself heard many descriptions of the earth, but I do not know, and I should very much like to know, in which of these you put faith. And I, Simeus, replied Socrates, if I had the art of Glaucus, would tell you, although I know not that the art of Glaucus could prove the truth of my tale, which I myself should never be able to prove. And even if I could, I fear, Simeus, that my life would come to an end before the argument was completed. I may describe to you, however, the form and regions of the earth according to my conception of them. That, said Simeus, will be enough. Well then, he said, my conviction is that the earth is a round body in the center of the heavens, and therefore has no need of air or any similar force to be a support, but is kept there, and hindered from falling or inclining any way, by the equability of the surrounding heaven and by her own equipoise, for that which, being in equipoise, is in the center of that which is equably diffused, will not incline any way in any degree, but will always remain in the same state and not deviate. And this is my first notion, which is surely a correct one, said Simeus. Also I believe that the earth is very vast, and that we who dwell in the region extending from the river Phasis to the pillars of Heracles inhabit a small portion only about the sea, like ants or frogs about a marsh, and that there are other inhabitants of many other like places, for everywhere on the face of the earth there are hollows of various forms and sizes, into which the water and the mist and the lower air collect. But the true earth is pure, and situated in the pure heaven. There are the stars also, and it is the heaven which is commonly spoken of by us as the ether, and of which our own earth is the sediment gathering in the hollows beneath. But we who live in these hollows are deceived into the notion that we are dwelling above on the surface of the earth, which is just as if a creature who was at the bottom of the sea were to fancy that he was on the surface of the water, and that the sea was the heaven through which he saw the sun and the other stars he having never come to the surface by reason of his feebleness and sluggishness, and having never lifted up his head and seen, nor ever heard, from one who had seen, how much purer and fairer the world above is than his own. And such is exactly our case. For we are dwelling in a hollow of the earth, and fancy that we are on the surface, and the air we call the heaven, in which we imagine that the stars move. But the fact is, that owing to our feebleness and sluggishness, we are prevented from reaching the surface of the air. For if any man could arrive at the exterior limit, or take the wings of a bird and come to the top, then like a fish who puts his head out of the water and sees this world, he would see a world beyond. And if the nature of man could sustain the sight, he would acknowledge that this other world was the place of the true heaven, and the true light, and the true earth. For our earth, and the stones, and the entire region which surrounds us, are spoilt and corroded, as in the sea all things are corroded by the brine. Neither is there any noble or perfect growth, but caverns only, and sand, and an endless slough of mud. And even the shore is not to be compared to the fairer sights of this world. And still less is this our world to be compared with the other. Of that upper earth which is under the heaven, I can tell you a charming tale, Simeus, which is well worth hearing. 
and we, Socrates, replied Simeus, shall be charmed to listen to you. The tale, my friend, he said, is as follows. In the first place, the earth, when looked at from above, is in appearance streaked, like one of those balls which have leather coverings in twelve pieces, and is decked with various colors, of which the colors used by painters on earth are in a manner samples. But there the whole earth is made up of them, and they are brighter far and clearer than ours. There is a purple of wonderful luster, also the radiance of gold, and the white which is in the earth is whiter than any chalk or snow. Of these and other colors the earth is made up, and they are more in number and fairer than the eye of man has ever seen. The very hollows, of which I was speaking, filled with air and water have a color of their own and are seen like light gleaming amid the diversity of the other colors, so that the whole presents a single and continuous appearance of variety in unity. And in this fair region everything that grows, trees and flowers and fruits, are in a like degree fairer than any here. And there are hills, having stones in them in a like degree smoother and more transparent, and fairer in color than our highly valued emeralds and sardonyxes and jaspers, and other gems, which are but minute fragments of them. For there all the stones are like our precious stones, and fairer still. The reason is that they are pure, and not, like our precious stones, infected or corroded by the corrupt briny elements which coagulate among us and which breed foulness and disease, both in earth and stones, as well as in animals and plants. They are the jewels of the upper earth, which also shines with gold and silver and the like, and they are set in the light of day, and are large and abundant in all places, making the earth a sight to gladden the beholder's eye. And there are animals and men, some in a middle region, others dwelling about the air as we dwell about the sea others in islands which the air flows round, near the continent. And, in a word, the air is used by them as the water and the sea are by us, and the ether is to them what the air is to us. Moreover, the temperament of their seasons is such that they have no disease, and live much longer than we do, and have sight and hearing and smell, and all the other senses in far greater perfection. In the same proportion that air is purer than water, or the ether, than air. Also, they have temples and sacred places in which the gods really dwell, and they hear their voices, and receive their answers, and are conscious of them and hold converse with them, and they see the sun, moon, and stars as they truly are, and their other blessedness is of a piece with this. Such is the nature of the whole earth, and of the things which are around the earth. And there are diverse regions in the hollows on the face of the globe everywhere, some of them deeper and more extended than that which we inhabit, others deeper but with a narrower opening than ours, and some are shallower and also wider. All have numerous perforations, and there are passages broad and narrow in the interior of the earth, connecting them with one another, and there flows out of and into them, as into basins, a vast tide of water and huge subterranean streams of perennial rivers, and springs hot and cold, and a great fire, and great rivers of fire, and streams of liquid mud, thin or thick, like the rivers of mud in Sicily, and the lava streams which follow them. And the regions about which they happen to flow are filled up with them, 
and there is a swinging, or seesaw, in the interior of the earth, which moves all this up and down, and is due to the following cause. There is a chasm, which is the vastest of them all, and pierces right through the whole earth. This is that chasm which Homer describes in the words, Far off, where is the inmost depth beneath the earth? And which he in other places, and many other poets, have called Tartarus. And the seesaw is caused by the streams flowing into and out of this chasm. And they each have the nature of the soil through which they flow. And the reason why the streams are always flowing in and out is that the watery element has no bed or bottom, but is swinging and surging up and down, and the surrounding wind and air do the same. They follow the water up and down, hither and thither, over the earth. Just as in the act of respiration, the air is always in process of inhalation and exhalation, and the wind swinging with the water in and out produces fearful and irresistible blasts. When the waters retire with a rush into the lower parts of the earth, as they are called, they flow through the earth in those regions and fill them up like water raised by a pump. And then when they leave those regions and rush back hither, they again fill the hollows here flow through subterranean channels and find their way to their several places, forming seas, and lakes, and rivers, and springs. Thence they again enter the earth, some of them making a long circuit into many lands, others going to a few places and not so distant, and again fall into Tartarus, some at a point a good deal lower than that at which they rose, and others not much lower, but all in some degree lower than the point from which they came, and some burst forth again on the opposite side, and some on the same side, and some wind round the earth with one or many folds like the coils of a serpent, and descend as far as they can, but always return and fall into the chasm. The rivers flowing in either direction can descend only to the center, and no further, for opposite to the rivers is a precipice. Now these rivers are many and mighty and diverse, and there are four principal ones, of which the greatest and outermost is that called Oceanus, which flows round the earth in a circle, and in the opposite direction flows Acheron, which passes under the earth through desert places into the Asherusian lake. This is the lake to the shores of which the souls of the many go when they are dead. And after waiting an appointed time, which is to some a longer and to some a shorter time, they are sent back to be born again as animals. The third river passes out between the two, and near the place of outlet pours into a vast region of fire, and forms a lake larger than the Mediterranean Sea, boiling with water and mud, and proceeding muddy and turbid and winding about the earth comes, among other places, to the extremities of the Asherusian lake, but mingles not with the waters of the lake and after making many coils about the earth plunges into Tartarus at a deeper level. This is that Pyriphlegathon, as the stream is called, which throws up jets of fire in different parts of the earth. The fourth river goes out on the opposite side, and falls first of all into a wild and savage region, which is all of a dark blue color, like lapis lazuli. And this is that river which is called the Stygian River, and falls into and forms the lake Styx and after falling into the lake and receiving strange powers in the waters, passes under the earth, winding round in the opposite direction, and comes near the Acherusian lake from the opposite side to Pyriphlegathon. And the water of this river too mingles with no other, but flows round in a circle and falls into Tartarus, 
over against Piriflegathon, and the name of the river, as the poets say, is Cossetus. Such is the nature of the other world, and when the dead arrive at the place to which the genius of each severally guides them, first of all, they have sentence passed upon them, as they have lived well and piously or not. And those who appear to have lived neither well nor ill go to the river Acheron, and embarking in any vessels which they may find, are carried in them to the lake, and there they dwell and are purified of their evil deeds, and having suffered the penalty of the wrongs which they have done to others, they are absolved, and receive the rewards of their good deeds, each of them according to his deserts. But those who appear to be incurable, by reason of the greatness of their crimes, who have committed many and terrible deeds of sacrilege, murders foul and violent, or the like, such are hurled into Tartarus, which is their suitable destiny, and they never come out. Those, again, who have committed crimes, which, although great, are not irremediable, who, in a moment of anger, for example, have done violence to a father or a mother, and have repented for the remainder of their lives, or who have taken the life of another under the like extenuating circumstances, these are plunged into Tartarus, the pains of which they are compelled to undergo for a year. But at the end of the year, the wave casts them forth, mere homicides by way of Cossetus, parasides and matricides by Pyriflegathon, and they are borne to the Asherusian lake. And there they lift up their voices and call upon the victims whom they have slain, or wronged, to have pity on them, and to be kind to them, and let them come out into the lake. And if they prevail, then they come forth and cease from their troubles. But if not, they are carried back again into Tartarus, and from thence into the rivers unceasingly, until they obtain mercy from those whom they have wronged. For that is the sentence inflicted upon them by their judges. Those, too, who have been preeminent for holiness of life are released from this earthly prison, and go to their pure home which is above, and dwell in the purer earth. And of these, such as have duly purified themselves with philosophy live henceforth altogether without the body, in mansions fairer still, which may not be described, and of which the time would fail me to tell. Wherefore, Simeus, seeing all these things, what ought not we to do that we may obtain virtue and wisdom in this life? Fair is the prize, and the hope great. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, t'will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right.